Woke up, fall out of bed, dried a comb across my head, found my way downstairs and drank a cup. And looking up, notice I was late. Do you know the next? <laughs> Beatles fans. I hope that song isn't, I know, no, I hope that song is stuck in your head for the rest of the day. It's been stuck in my head all week. A day in the life. I read this passage this week, uh, Mark 8, 11 to 21, and that song came to mind. And as I read that passage, I thought about how easily we're thrown off kilter and thrown into unbelief or sin. It made me think of my own beloved morning routine, kind of like the day in the life of John Lennon and Paul McCartney. Um, so my morning routine begins, my alarm wakes up, I shower, I eat breakfast, some form of eggs, thank God for all these sometimes 89 cent eggs. Uh, I listen to roughly two and a half podcasts while I make breakfast and eat, some kind of news podcast, maybe a, a little bit of a sermon. I do dishes. I drink coffee after breakfast. I need a full stomach to drink coffee, so that's when I do it. And then I read, I pray, I brush my teeth, I pack my lunch, and then I'm out the door. That beloved morning routine. If that routine gets messed up at some point, I practically have a meltdown. If I forgot or ran out of coffee or eggs, I risk sinking into a depression or boiling to a panic. Yes, that's an exaggeration, but it's still a disappointment. A kink in my morning routine can throw off the trajectory of my entire day and take a while for me to recover from. Isn't that the same for all of life? Isn't that true for a lot of life in general? I mean, think about it. Things as small as the car in front of you not going as fast as you want it to go. Things as small as stubbing your toe on the table for the 10th time this month. <laughs> Things as small as a bad meal at a restaurant. Things as small as a paper jam in the copier. Things as small as a player on your fantasy football team underperforming for the third week in a row makes you and makes us upset, sour, angry, and even throws off our relationship with the Lord. Like, it's so ridiculous and petty. Why do the littlest things throw us off? There's several layers to it, I'm sure. Maybe it's that we don't really believe that the Lord is as trustworthy or as praiseworthy as we say we believe. I mean, seriously, has God not given us enough evidence of his goodness toward us that we can't trust him through a traffic jam? But in those moments, God has a way of graciously reminding us something simple. You're being ridiculous, and I haven't changed. Our passage today shows us two different groups who are far too easily thrown into unbelief. First group shows us when it comes to faith in Christ, we have to have an honest self-awareness. This group was on a fault-finding journey that looked everywhere but at itself. A journey that's never willing to say, I'm being ridiculous. The second group's failure 
will show us more of the second part of that realization that God graciously reminds us of. They failed to realize Jesus hasn't changed. So the main point of our passage this morning is this. If we are going to trust and continue to trust in Jesus, we need to be honest about ourselves and honest about him. If we're going to trust and continue to trust in Jesus, we need to be honest about ourselves and honest about him. What that looks like? Basically saying something like this. I'm an idiot. And Jesus is all that he's cracked up to be. All right? So let's turn to the Bible. Mark 8, verses 10 to 21. You'll find it on page 843 if you're looking at one of these red Bibles in the pew rack in front of you. Mark 8, actually we're going to begin in verse 10, and we'll read to verse 21. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Here's God's word. So I'll repeat the main point again. If we're, going to be, if we're going to trust and continue to trust in Jesus, then we need to be honest about ourselves and honest about Jesus. What that looks like is saying something like, I'm an idiot and Jesus is all that he's cracked up to be. Well, if you've been with us throughout our journey in Mark, you'll notice that today's passage relates to a couple of the central themes of the book. The biggest theme of Mark has been the identity of Jesus as the Son of God, what that means and what that doesn't mean. We see Jesus' authority displayed over demons, over death, over disease. But we also see that Jesus doesn't meet the expectations of what it means to be the Messiah for the people of Israel at the time. They thought the Messiah would come to set them free from Roman oppression. That's not what Jesus came to do on his first mission. Over the last several weeks, we've seen that Jesus has come to save anyone who would turn from their sins and believe in him, to be that suffering servant, to die for his people that they may enter the kingdom of God. And to enter into that kingdom, to believe in Jesus, Jesus says, he calls them to repent and believe. From the start, chapter one, that's his first message in his sermons. Now, we've seen in the recent weeks, and we'll see again today, what that faith looks like, 
what faith in Jesus looks like. And today, we'll get two negative examples of that in this section, two bad examples of faith in Jesus. And it's likely that we can get a lot of takeaways from both of these, but the main one for each section relates to the two parts of the main point. So from verses 10 to 13, the main thing we want to take away is to get real about yourself. Get real about yourself. From verses 14 to 21, the main thing we want to take away is to get real about Jesus. Get real about ourselves. Get real about Jesus. Now let's head into the first section, into verses 10 to 13. And we're going to see that both of these sections break down in a similar way. So reading verses 10 to 13, there's a setup of the scene. There's the action itself begins with some kind of error. The group messes up, and Jesus responds to that error. The same breakdown will be uh, for the next section, too. A setup, an error, and Jesus' response. So the setup of this section is short and simple. It deals with where Jesus is and who meets him when he gets there. It's probably best to see verse 10 introducing a new section rather than closing out an old one. It's been Mark's pattern to begin new parts of his story, uh, noting where Jesus is. So in this scenario, Jesus is in the district of Dalmanutha. Now, Dalmanutha, this is the only time in the Bible where it mentions this place, and exactly where it is is not known for certain. That's okay. We get some clues. Matthew's parallel account, Matthew 15, writing about the same event. Matthew says Jesus goes to Magdala uh, or Magadon. Uh, This would be a fishing center and where Mary Magdalene was from. And uh, recently they discovered a first century synagogue there, likely where Jesus talked. Very cool. So Dalmanutha is likely the same as Magadon or Magdala or right by it. That's where Jesus is, part of the setup of this story. Now, who met Jesus when he got there? A group we know well by now, the Pharisees. And thinking back over Mark, how many times have we noticed that this has happened to Jesus? He arrives at a place, and he doesn't even get a single breath's notice, and people just show up. We never hear a word of complaint from him about that. Even when those who show up aren't eager to see him, but are eager to pursue him. And so to remind you, the Pharisees were among the Jewish religious leaders of the day. The Pharisees are kind of like the glitter of Jesus' story. No, they're not sparkly. They're the glitter in that they, you use it and they never go away. You always find them at some turn. Just when you think they're gone, they show up again, just like glitter. Now, each time we've seen the Pharisees encounter Jesus, they don't come with lessons from Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. They come to oppose Jesus. In fact, at one point, they plot with some of their enemies, get together with them and say, let's find a way to destroy this man. That's an undercurrent throughout much of Mark. Opposition to the Son of God. And so Jesus' purity, his displays of authority, threaten the Pharisees. It threatens their reputation. It threatens their power. It threatens the system that they controlled. 
Now, we saw the heart of Jesus' indictment against them back in chapter 7 when he sort of unmasked their hypocrisy, showing that they used extraneous rules to the law to secure their power and keep on living in a self-serving way. That's who they were at their core, and Jesus exposed them. So one encouraging thing I've heard is that if you don't like religious hypocrisy, the Bible's for you. There's no other book that is as critical as religious hypocrisy as the Bible. So what is the error? That's the setup of the scene. See where Jesus is, who meets him when he gets there. What's the error that happens? Well, the Pharisees didn't even have to say anything, and we already see that they're up to no good. And we know what that's like. Have you ever, has someone ever come up to you and you already know what they want and what they're about before they even say anything? Uh, so if you've worked as one of these in the past, I sincerely apologize. But the example that came to my mind was the people at the mall who work at the kiosk. Okay, like they don't even have to say anything and you already know what they're about when they come and approach you. It's just to show you like how gullible and people-pleasing I am. I'm so non-confrontational that one time I got roped into getting one of those massages out of those massage chairs kiosks in the mall. There's 45 minutes of my life I'll never get back. <laughs> the Pharisees' error begins even before they say anything. And Jesus knows this. Jesus recognizes this. He knows what's going on. That'll explain his response in a moment. Now look at how Mark describes the Pharisees approaching Jesus in verse 11. You can get some sense that it's not a positive approach. It mainly comes out in the word argue. Besides that, though, there are other words that just conveyed their attitude in coming to Jesus. So the word for came out is like marching out in a military rank. They're coming ready for battle. And they don't just question Jesus, they argue with him. Another way to translate it is, is to dispute or to oppose. They come seeking something from Jesus. That's a word used when someone has ulterior motives, trying to get control over somebody else. And they come, their whole motive, Mark states clearly, to test him. And the word there doesn't describe a test with a mindset like, oh, let's see if this guy's good. It's the mindset of trying to discredit something or someone. So the Pharisees' error, their approach to Jesus, we could see it's negative even before words come out of their mouth. So it's important to know all that's going on inside of the Pharisees before we jump in and, actually, and we actually see what they say to Jesus. It's with that attitude and motive they come to Jesus and ask him for what? A sign from heaven. And our gut reaction might be, well, Mr. Pharisee, haven't you been paying attention to what Jesus has been doing? Now, that's not a wrong question to ask. Because if they really had been, this wouldn't have been a problem for them. But, you know, I think the Pharisees are asking for something more than another miracle. They're asking for, it, it, they're, it's not as if Jesus is evil Knievel and, who jumped buses and now the Pharisees want to see him jump the Grand Canyon. No, the, the Pharisees are asking for a sign from heaven. 
So if God was behind what Jesus was doing, they want Jesus to ask, they want Jesus to ask God to confirm or validate his work. That's the sign from heaven. So how does Jesus respond? Again, even before he says anything, we can know what he's thinking. Verse 12 begins, with, begins by saying that Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit. And the last time we saw him do this was back in chapter 7, when the people of the Decapolis brought to him a deaf and mute man. And instead of despairing over the effects of a broken world here, Jesus groans over the Pharisees' hearts. There he groans over the brokenness of a man. Here he groans over the state of people's hearts. Jesus sees beyond their question. He knows exactly what they're trying to get at. He knows the Pharisees' hearts to destroy him, to discredit him. And that informs why Jesus says what he does here. Jesus says no sign will be given to them. Why? Because at the end of the day, no sign is going to work for them. No signs given to them because no sign is going to work for them. Think about this. If you are determined to oppose and find faults in Jesus, it's just like the Pharisees, you'll find your way around any sign. You'll find another way to explain it. You'll find another way to brush it aside. No sign will work for you if you are determined to oppose it. You can go back to chapter 3. Mark itself. By that point, Jesus' miracles were well attested and extensive. Pharisees can't even deny it. Other religious leaders can't deny it. But how do they explain it? Well, they don't deny it. The way they explain it is that Jesus does this by the power of Satan. If you're determined not to believe, you'll find a way to discredit any sign. No sign is going to work for you. So like we say often here, uh, we don't want to discourage questions about the Bible. Don't want to discourage questions about Jesus or about Christianity. We even read earlier of Gideon, right? Squeamish, skittish Gideon asking God for a sign. And he's not rebuked for it. Now, we don't want to discourage questions. And we'll see in the second passage of how the disciples actually didn't do a good enough job considering who Jesus is. The lesson that the Pharisees show us here, though, is that for as much as we want to promote good, searching questions about Christianity, we need to check our motives. We need to get real about ourselves if we're going to do that well. We need to ask, like the Pharisees should have asked, will we allow the evidence to speak for itself? Will we read the Bible on its own terms? Will we take Jesus' claims at face value? Or are you going to deny that even before it gets started? A question I often ask, you've probably heard me ask it before, is if you had all of your questions and doubts answered, then would you believe? If the answer is no, then there's something else going on. It's not an intellectual thing that's going on. 
The Pharisees deny Jesus outright and won't let the evidence speak for itself. Why? What keeps them from doing that? Why won't they let the evidence speak for itself? Why won't a sign work for them? They deny Jesus outright and won't let the evidence speak for itself because they want to protect their own interests. They want to protect their own interests. Because you know what? If Jesus says, if Jesus is who he says he is, then the Pharisees have to give up control of their lives. They have to give up their power. It's not in their interest for Jesus to be the Messiah. And they're not willing to acknowledge that. They couldn't get real about that. They couldn't acknowledge, oh, we hate Jesus, so maybe we can't evaluate him without any bias. Pastor Tim Keller uses the analogy, uh, and it's helpful, like this, of a judge. Of a judge who is trying a case involving a company in which he held stock. He could not be unbiased if he knew that. Should the company be found guilty, he would lose thousands of dollars. So too, we are not unbiased looking at Jesus if we know that. Should he be found to be Lord, we must obey him and lose control of our lives. They won't uh, take the evidence for what it is because it would mean losing their self-interest. You might be here this morning and still on the fence about Jesus. You may not have somebody in your life who is like that. And based on what's here, what we want to lean into a little bit and kind of respect, respectfully say is get real. Is your skepticism about Jesus really about intellectual questions? Or is it because of the ramifications it will have on your life? No sign will work if you don't want to give up your own self-interest. There are other examples of that in the Bible. Other examples uh, in the Gospels besides the Pharisees here. In a couple of chapters, we're going to meet a man named the rich young ruler. That's what they call him. The rich young ruler comes and meets Jesus. And he walks away from Jesus. Why? Because he would have to give up his own interests if he follows him. Because this rich young ruler realized that he can't love money and love Christ. So then he loved his money instead. There's another story of people protecting their own self-interest, keeping them from the Lord. Book of Luke, Jesus tells another story of a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. They both die and their roles reverse. The rich man ends up in hell. The poor man ends up in heaven. The rich man asks for someone to come back from the dead to warn his brothers about hell. What does the angel say to him? They already have what they need. They're already denying the evidence that's in front of them. Another sign won't do it for them. If they are committed, devoted to denying the signs, the evidence given from God. It's on them. It's not on the Lord. Friends, we won't follow Jesus until we get real about ourselves. And here's the rub of it, really. The Pharisees just waited. God has given a sign verifying Jesus' work. You know what it is? Verifying that he is the Son of God who paid for our sins. You know what that sign is? 
His resurrection. That's the sign. By raising him from the dead. That's the entire New Testament. God's verifying Jesus' work and identity. Look at places like Romans 1, 4. Look at places like Acts 2, 24. Read all of 1 Corinthians 15. And even if we're brought face to face with that, we won't accept that if we would rather live for ourselves than live for him. That's what we read earlier in John 3. People loved the darkness rather than the light. You can have all the light you want. You still love the darkness. You're not going to come to the light. John 3, 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. But friends, be assured and assure others that while following Jesus means denying ourselves, and really, where have we gotten ourselves on our own anyway? While following Jesus means denying ourselves, we need to be assured that following Jesus is worth it. He is who he says he is. He is the shepherd and overseer of our souls. And you know what? God has verified his work and who he is. So get real about yourself. But next, we're going to see we need to get real about Jesus. Verses 14 to 21. So as we head into the next section of this passage, Jesus and his disciples get in the boat and head out on the Sea of Galilee. How many times have they done that? Typical routine by now. And you might be responding to what we've covered so far by saying, you know, this is a good reminder, Steve. Thanks. But you know what? I, I'm here. I'm aboard the Jesus train. Whoop, whoop. <laughs> Deny yourself. Follow Jesus. Yeah, that's me. All in. Well, friend, praise God. Our second section reminds us that while faith in Jesus has a starting point, following him is something we actively do. The Bible often uses the, the verb walk, everyday life, walking after Christ. And because that road is dangerous, and because our hearts are full of sin and not fully rid of it yet, we especially need this second section. And it breaks down in a similar way. We're going to see a setup, we're going to see an error, and we'll see Jesus' response to that error. So, First, we see how Mark sets up this scene. Jesus is in the boat again with his disciples, and they have a conversation about bread. No, Thomas does not have a gluten allergy. The disciples forgot to bring enough bread. And isn't there an irony here? Jesus had just expressed concern about people not having enough food on the journey home. And now the disciples don't have enough food on the journey home. I liked what one commentator said. Uh, he said, at the very least, the disciples should have at least seen the humor of the situation. You know how much bread they had just seen Jesus distribute? He just fed thousands of people with bread, and they forgot bread. Well, instead of laughing at themselves, they get frustrated. It's a reminder to us. Instead of, instead of um, taking ourselves too seriously, we shouldn't do that. It's a small reminder that, yes, we should take the Lord seriously, but we shouldn't take ourselves too seriously. It's okay to laugh. 
It's okay to be joyful. So from there, the setup continues. Jesus in his boat with the disciples, talking about bread. And it continues with a series of miscommunications. You know, dovetailing off bread, Jesus warns the disciples in verse 15 about the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, there are some details we should take stock of if we're going to understand what's going on. Uh, so in case you have no dealings with bakery terminology, leaven is what makes the dough fluffy. Uh, this is an image used throughout the Bible, uh, highlighting the danger of sin. So just like it takes only a little leaven to fluffify, this is a new word I'm inventing, uh, it takes only a little leaven to fluffify a whole lump of dough, so it only takes a little bit of sin to spread to us more and to spread to other people. That's the image that the Bible uses frequently. So what is the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod? What is that? What is Jesus warning his disciples of? Well, the Pharisees and Herod don't have much in common, but they do have one thing in common. It relates to Jesus. They don't like him. They oppose him. And why do the Pharisees and Herod oppose him? Fundamentally, at the core, they oppose him because they don't believe who he is. If they believe Jesus is the Son of God, I mean, really, and embraced it, they wouldn't oppose him. So, it's because they won't get real about themselves, what we went over in the first point, and likely having witnessed Jesus' encounter with the Pharisees that just happened, in verses 10 to 13, Jesus tells his disciples, don't think that same attitude can't be in you. That's the heart of the warning. Don't think you can't have that same attitude of unbelief, even though you're with me right now. What a great teaching moment, right? Jesus spins their focus on bread into a needed spiritual warning. But then what happens? Oh, the disciples just deflate the situation as always. Look at verse 16. They stay on the bread subject, but they don't exactly go down the trail where Jesus leads. Instead, in response to Jesus' warning about leaven, the disciples basically say, oh yeah, leaven. Speaking of leaven, leaven is in bread and we don't have any. Their error then was that they were already failing to listen to his warning. They were already proving Jesus' point of how easily it is to fall into unbelief, that that leaven's going to spread. They were proving Jesus' point. Whereas the setup of the story was humorously ironic, the error of the story is tragically ironic. You think about what threw off the disciples into sin and unbelief, into not believing who Jesus, who Jesus is. What threw them off? What little thing threw them off into that? It's a lack of bread. That's it. Jesus is going to point out the obvious to them. If he fed the 5,000 from five loaves, if he fed the 4,000 from seven loaves, then they shouldn't worry if he could feed 12 from one loaf. Now, before we jump fully into Jesus' response, we need to consider how we ourselves heed Jesus' warning. Because, y'all, it is so easy for us to waver in our faith. 
like leaven, just takes a little bit to throw us off into unbelief. Just takes a little bit of pressure and we cave. Why? Why is it that our faith is so easily thrown off, even by the smallest of things, like we were talking about at the very beginning? I think there are a lot of reasons we could give, um, but I think much of it boils down to why, the, you know, why we're so easily thrown into unbelief, even by small things. I think one of the biggest reasons is entitlement. Entitlement. When things don't go our way, even in the smallest of circumstances, we ask, what gives? When we look to our futures and have a set of expectations and when they don't come to fruition, we ask, what gives? When we look to our past and things are now no longer what they used to be, we ask, what gives? When we look to other people and see that they have things that we want but don't have, we ask, what gives? When we spill coffee on ourselves at the end of a bad day and say, oh, that's just a cherry on top, isn't it? Sinclair Ferguson says this. Sometimes we think that only tragedy of major proportions could create hardness of heart and spiritual blindness in our lives. Here, it's too little bread was a sufficient cause to show just how hard hearts and how blind their spiritual understanding could be. Didn't take a tragedy. It took too little of bread. Jesus knows, friends, that there are frustrating things in the world. Jesus knows that. He went through them. He says, in the world we will have many troubles. And Jesus doesn't ask us to have are not to have aspirations. Jesus doesn't ask us not to notice when bad things happen, but in processing those things. Are we going to get real about Jesus? Will we see only the troubles in this world, or will the troubles in this world make us to focus more on the one who's overcome the world? Yes, frustrating things happen. But Jesus is still with us. Think about the disciples in this situation, okay? Lack of bread. Instead of the frustration, they should have just looked at who was still there. Should have said, oh, man, we forgot bread. Yeah, we're goofs. We'll remember next time. But man, you know what? Jesus is still here. He just fed 4,000 people. So, friends, in those moments of frustration when our expectations don't pan out and we're tempted to despair, instead of asking what gives, ask, who's still here? Jesus is. This is the Son of God who died for you and who lives evermore to make intercession for you before the Father. He's still here. He's still doing that. I know it's hard to see sometimes, but those things are still true about him, even in our most frustrating moments. So friends, the point is this. Since unbelief is so easy, as the disciples prove here, and we prove all the time with our entitlement and discontent, since unbelief is so easy, we need to constantly walk in light of who Christ really is. 
how he's still here. And what's going to help us do that? What's going to help us keep Christ in front of us? I'm going to give you some meat and potatoes here. You might see this coming. Two basic things. Help keep Christ in front of us so that we don't so easily waver and lose focus on him. Read the Bible and come to church. It may seem so simple, but if we are so easily thrown off and lose focus of Jesus, it's no wonder that the author of Hebrews says not to forsake gathering together with God's people. So I'll state it like this. I'm not saying that coming to church guarantees your faith will never waver, but can you really be surprised if your faith is easily thrown off if you stop coming to church? It's one of the many reasons to be here. If we are so easily thrown off and lose focus on Jesus, then it's no wonder that Jesus calls the word of God our spiritual food. It's no wonder that Psalm 119 calls it a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So I'll state it like this. I'm not saying that reading the Bible guarantees your faith will never waver. But can you really be surprised if your faith isn't strong if you don't read the Bible? So, coming to church, reading the Bible, meat and potatoes. How we keep Jesus in front of us. Maybe keep ourselves from not wavering in our faith and keep focused on the Lord. Now, real quick before we go on, okay, I want to joyously challenge you here. If you've been around church long enough, you know that what I said can be, what I just said can be pretty routine. You could go away saying, you know what, at church, the preacher said to come to church and read the Bible. Well, amen. Yes, I did say that. And hopefully you know from this passage why those things are so important. But my challenge is this. My joyous challenge is this. Friends, get beyond that starting point of reading and coming to church. Those are good starting points, okay? But we are meant to grow. So I don't want to underestimate how much of an effort it takes for some just to get here and for some just to crack open a Bible. At the same time, we want to be careful with confusing faithfulness with stagnancy. Faithfulness is commendable, but stagnancy isn't. I know it can be hard, but the reason we give ourselves to digging into the word and studying God is not just so that we can learn facts, but so that we can actually know God better. And when we know God better, we can hold on to him more tightly when storms come. So, go beyond the starting points. Dig a little bit deeper. Come to Sunday school. Come to Wednesday nights. Read a hard book. Do a page a day. You're not getting graded. It's okay. Do those things because you want to know more of God and because you want to keep your focus on him and because you want to hold on to him more tightly. That's the motive. All right, we hinted at it a couple minutes ago. But Jesus does respond to the disciples' error. His response closes out the passage and goes from verses 17 to 21. Now, if we had to sum up much of Jesus' response with an emoji, it would be the face palm emoji. 
right? If uh, there, yes, there is an emoji Bible, uh, believe it or not. That's another discussion for another day. Uh, if you don't know what an emoji is, you are not missing out. That is okay. <laughs> Jesus points out what's obvious to us, but not to the disciples. He says, stop getting caught up in bread for just a second and remember who's right in front of you. And even in this face palm moment, Jesus remains kind and still holds out hope for his bumbling disciples. Notice his response to them. Look at the end of those sentences. They don't end with exclamation points. They end with question marks. Verses 17 to 21. You see, Jesus has a way of drawing people out even when it's as slow and as basic here. Drawing people out to help them realize who he is. He asks basic questions about the 5,000, about the 4,000. He gets them to verbalize that as he had compassion on those people, why wouldn't he have compassion on them? He's saying, guys, stop fussing so much and trust me. Notice in his response to them, Jesus also says two important words twice. He says it once in verse 17. He says it once in verse 21. Two important words. Not yet. Now, we can read that negatively, but I think we can also read that positively too. So maybe this describes you, I don't know. But we came to church this morning because we have gotten real about ourselves, and it's not pretty. We need something. We need the Lord. We may feel trapped in failure after failure, sin after sin, wavering after wavering. And then we get to those two words, not yet. Here are Jesus' disciples who are with him, but sin and sin, fail and fail, waver and waver. And the hope he sets out for them is the hope he sets out for us. Not yet. One day, friends, we will be free from sinning because Jesus intervenes. Jesus is going to redeem these ones who are with him, who continue to fail and fail and sin and sin and waver and waver. He's going to redeem them by dying for them even as they failed him, even as they sinned against him. He's going to take their sins and ours, die for it, raise us to new life, and give us power to hold on to him right now. Friends, let's get real. Jesus is with us, and he's going to hold on to us. And he's going to move in us so that we keep holding on to him. Let's pray.